Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, we delve into DNA and what it can tell us about our past, our present, and our future. And we find out what happened when we decided to read the DNA sequence of a local sausage. A little bit of chicken, and actually a really trace amount of human as well. Hold on a second. You found human DNA? Yes. In in some sausages. Plus, in the news, what won Nobel Prizes, the world's largest HIV survey, and why doing exercise you don't like makes you more likely to binge on junk food. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up this week, a gene therapy technique that can help to repair the retina and restore lost vision has been pioneered at the University of Oxford. The retina is the light-sensitive sheet of tissue at the back of the eye where rod and cone cells convert light waves into electrical signals that the brain can understand. But in diseases like retinitis pigmentosa, these cells die off, leaving patients unable to see. Now, Samantha de Silva and her colleagues have developed a way to use a harmless virus to deliver genetic instructions that can make other healthy surviving cells in the retina become light-sensitive and thus make blind mice see. In these conditions, there's a gradual loss of light-sensing cells at the back of the eye. So those are the rods and cones. And over time, the rods and cones eventually die, resulting in blindness. Despite the loss of rods and cones, the rest of the cells in the retina actually remain largely structurally intact, along with the connections between those cells and the connections to the brain. So what we aim to do is see if there's any way of stimulating these remaining retinal cells to try and restore light sensitivity and even vision. So essentially you're turning cells in the back of the eye that wouldn't normally function like rods and cones into cells that can take up some of the function of the light sensing rods and cones so you can get signals into the brain again. Exactly. So initial work done in 2005 by Professor Mark Hankins, who's one of the senior authors on this paper, showed that if you take a light sensing protein, and one of those is called melanopsin, which is already present in the human eye, and put it in a cell which is not light sensitive, that cell then becomes light sensing. 
And based on that work, we tried to see if we could express melanopsin, so a human protein in these remaining retinal cells, and make them light-sensitive in the absence of rods and cones. How do you get the instruction to make that light-sensing chemical melanopsin into the cells that now need it then? So this is where the gene therapy comes in. So essentially... Um, what we do is we take a virus called an adeno-associated virus, which is harmless to humans, and we genetically engineer that virus to get rid of all the genes and proteins that it normally expresses and make it express proteins that we want to express, and that's the ultimate concept of gene therapy. And so what we did was we engineered these viruses to express melanopsin and then injected them underneath the retina of mice with retinitis pigmentosa to see whether the virus was taken up and whether it would be effective. And does the virus go into these cells that are surviving and and add the genes to them? Yeah, the first finding of our paper really was that this virus was effective. It was able to get the melanopsin into the remaining cells and that expression was initially seen after a few weeks but persisted up to 15 months after a single injection. So it essentially lasted the whole lifetime of that mouse. Was there any inflammation? Because obviously you're putting a lot of something foreign into a part of the body where it would never normally be seen. Does the immune system react? So that's part of the beauty of using the subretinal approach in that the space underneath the retina is what we call immune privilege. So there is uh, not normally an immune response mounted to anything being in that area. And so the eye lends itself very well to gene therapy for that reason. So we didn't see any immune response in any of the mice that were injected or treated. And how did you know you had made a difference to the vision in these mice? Once we were able to establish that we had got the virus working and there was melanopsin in the cells, we used electrodes to record from the treated retinas and that showed that when we shone a light on the retinas they generated electrical signals that could be transmitted to the brain. And then how did you prove that the brain was actually interpreting this information? Because it's one thing for the retina to be a little bit more electrically active, but that doesn't mean the signals are going to the brain. Exactly. So the next step, we looked at a number of different things. One was the pupil light response. So normally when you shine light into someone's eye, their pupil constricts. And that's a marker of the appropriate circuits within the brain being activated. And so in blind mice, that pupil response is severely attenuated because of the lack of detection of light. Whereas in the treated mice, the pupil light reflex was restored both at two months and then going on to look at mice at 13 months. In terms of the light responses and vision responses we found, we found that the mice in our study were able to detect a change in their visual environment. And that would probably equate to a completely blind person being able to recognise their environment. So possibly where a door is, where a window is, where an obstacle in the road or something like that is. So we're not talking about rapidly dynamic vision because I don't think melanopsin would be able to restore that. But obviously, if you've got nothing at all to start with, then that's a significant improvement. Is the next step to now do a clinical trial? Are you at the stage where you could safely do that? So essentially all the groundwork has been done. Um, To take it forward to a clinical trial, there are further steps such as to make a virus which is suitable for use in humans rather than just in the lab. And all of that in the regulatory work takes a couple of years. So we'd hope to try and get it to patients within the next few years. 
so one to keep an eye on. Samantha de Silva, and she published that work in PNAS. The 2017 Nobel Prizes have now been announced. The first to be made public was for physiology or medicine, which went to Geoffrey Hall, Michael Rosbash and Michael Young, who sussed out how the body clock works. Clock doc Ned Hoyle researches this subject himself at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, and he took the time to take us through it. Animals, plants, some fungi and even bacteria possess a 24-hour timer which is hardwired into their biology. This allows them to pursue a lifestyle which reflects the day-night cycle of our planet. This year's Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine is for pioneering work in fruit flies. The scientists identified the genetics behind how organisms keep to a daily rhythm. Hall, Rosbash and Young didn't just identify the genes involved, which was an arduous task at the time, taking several years, but they also figured out how they act to measure time. The genes involved in the biological clock can turn themselves on and off in a process known as negative feedback. The activity of period, the first gene they identified, rises during the night until dawn when it switches itself off. During the day, levels of period fall until it switches itself back on again, beginning the cycle again. It's this on-off switching repeating itself each day, which is a fundamental basis of daily biological clocks. This elegant mechanism has held true not only for flies, but also for mammals, plants and even fungi. Later research has shown that a large part of human physiology is affected by daily biological timekeeping, including hormones, sleep, body temperature and metabolism. Understanding of biological timekeeping has impacts upon human health. For example, shift work, where our internal clocks are misaligned with the day-night cycle, is a risk factor for a number of diseases, including type 2 diabetes and cancer. With greater knowledge of our body clock, we might one day mitigate these harmful effects or at least make more informed choices about our lifestyle. Ned Hoyle there, and there will be more updates on the Nobel Prizes later in the programme. Hello, Georgia here with a quick interruption to ask for your help. At The Naked Scientist, we're always trying to make the best possible programmes. And one way we try to improve is by asking you to tell us what you think. The things we're doing well, the things we're doing not so well, and things you think we should be doing but we aren't. We've got a very simple online survey that just takes a few minutes to complete. It's open for the next few weeks and to sweeten the deal, if you fill it in for us, you could win some Amazon vouchers. The survey is open now at www.thenakedscientist.com survey. It just takes five minutes and is really appreciated. We read every word. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Izzy Clark, and with Chris Smith. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. Nigeria is Africa's most populous country. Over 170 million people live there and it's growing very rapidly. But millions of people there are also infected with HIV. And Nigeria has received billions of dollars in international aid to help them to control the spread of the disease. No one knows, though, how many people are actually infected or where, so it's very hard to ensure that these resources are actually being used properly. Last year, Sani Aliu, who's an infectious diseases consultant from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, was seconded to Nigeria to try to help, and he's doing that by setting up what will become the largest HIV survey the world has ever seen. How are you going to do this, Sani? 
So, Chris, um, what's happening in Nigeria is the country is one of a handful of countries facing the triple threat of a high HIV burden, a treatment program that's, that doesn't really cover the majority of uh, patients with HIV, and also a very slow decline in the number of new infections. So when, when I started, one of the key problems we had was being able to assess the impact of the program. We were having targets that were clearly not achievable. We had issues with prevention of mother-to-child transmission where on average one in every three babies born in the world with HIV is a Nigerian child. But the targets set up for the implementing partners was really not achievable. So we decided the best way to go about dealing with this is to establish the true prevalence of HIV in the country to find out really how many people have we got. And what we're planning to do is to do a two-stage cluster survey of households. It will be the largest HIV survey ever done in the world. Um, our sample frame constitutes about 30 million households. And what that's geographically dotted across Nigeria. Yes. So what are you doing, dividing the country into sectors so that you're taking a representative cross-section of each of these geographies? That's right. So we have what we call enumeration areas. So first of all, we'll take up enumeration areas within every sampling frame. And within each enumeration area, you'll have 25 households. We have six geopolitical zones across the country. So that makes it actually much easier. And we'll be taking states at a time, subnational entities at a time. And as we go through, we'll be not only be providing HIV counseling and testing, we'll also be looking at incidence of HIV. And for those who are already HIV positive, are they virologically suppressed? And do they have any resistance issues? Are there issues with the quality of services? So a whole range of things. But it's going to be a huge exercise. The U.S. government, through the Presidential Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief, is funding this to the tune of about 85 million US dollars. It makes it by far the largest investment on a survey ever done on HIV. But why will this help to get a handle on what's going on in the country and achieving the decline in the spread of HIV in Nigeria? A lot of money has gone into the HIV national program in Nigeria. We really need clarity on the impact of the program. Are we doing well in the first instance? And if we're not doing well, why is it that we're not doing well? And my feeling is that a lot of the problems arise from the difficulty in really targeting high prevalence areas, being able to identify parts of the population that have a high prevalence of HIV. This survey will give us an answer to that because we'll be able to channel those resources effectively. The U.S. government has spent about $4.3 billion U.S. billion since the beginning of the HIV program in Nigeria alone. Global Fund has spent about $1.3 billion U.S. billion. And even as I speak, um, the U.S. government are spending between three fifty to $400 million U.S. million every year on more than a million people on treatment. But as we get more and more people on treatment, Chris, it's going to become more and more difficult to find those positives left. And the, we need to the be law more of vanishing returns. Exactly. And we need to be more cost effective in terms of how we are using the resources to find those positives. Some people may say that uh, why are we spending so much money on one country and there are lots of needy situations, lots of uh, deserving cases and causes. What's the value of investing such prodigious sums in one country? Admittedly, there are a lot of people there. Why should we be spending this money in Nigeria? We talk about trying to eliminate HIV in the long run, having epidemic control globally. You cannot have epidemic control of HIV in the world without having epidemic control in Nigeria. It will just not happen because we estimate about 3 million people have HIV. We have the second largest HIV burden in the world. 
we need to be able to get on top of the HIV situation in Nigeria. Otherwise, it will be like throwing good money after bad money. A lot of the East African countries have done very well based on similar surveys that have been done. But because they are smaller countries, it, it's, um, it's cheaper to get these surveys done. Whereas in Nigeria, it's a completely different issue. The answer we will get from Nigeria will enable us to target where the resources need to go to and we'll be able to know what additional resources we need to get on top of the 1990 targets uh, set by the United Nations. Sani, we wish you luck and thank you very much for coming and telling us about it. It kicks off next year. That's Dr. Sani Aliu and he's currently the Director General of the National Agency for the Control of AIDS in Nigeria. Back to the Nobel Prizes now. And next on our list is chemistry, which was awarded to Jacques Dubochet, Joachim Frank and Richard Henderson for their work on an imaging technique called cryo-electron microscopy. Tony Crowther uses electron microscopy in his research and has known Richard for many years as a colleague at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. Uh, I'm delighted to be sharing a Nobel Prize. Uh, I think... To understand the way life works in health and disease, it's necessary to know the detailed structures of the complex molecules involved. Many processes in the cells of all living things depend on large, dynamic molecular machines. Previously, this required making crystals of the molecule and solving the atomic structure by X-ray crystallography. This could be difficult as important molecules or complexes might not crystallise and movements in the molecules key to their function would be inaccessible. This has all changed with recent developments in cryo-electron microscopy, particularly in electron microscopes, in electron detectors, and in computer software. The molecule of interest can be trapped in a frozen state, and its atomic structure determined by computer averaging of multiple images of views in different directions. This may also illuminate different conformations important in understanding the function of the molecule. The newly developed technique, still open to some improvements, will be useful to all biologists interested in molecular structures and to pharmaceutical companies involved in drug development. For example, already in the LMB, the structure of the tau protein filament important in Alzheimer's disease has recently been solved. So we think in a few years, I don't know, five years, we might know most of the structures, in, certainly in, in the human biological population, and then in pathogenic bacteria and so on. So really, it's quite an exciting time. It's incredibly exciting. That was Tony Crowther there from the LMB in Cambridge. And the other voice you heard was the winner himself, Richard Henderson. Yes, and big congratulations to him. What well, is something completely different now? Michael Wheeler's been working up a sweat down at the gym. But did he decide on the exercise regime or did someone else? It's a very important distinction because it could determine just how tempted he is afterwards by the junk food on offer in the vending machine. Many of us can relate to those days when we manage to get in a tough exercise session, but then all we want to do is eat junk food. But on other times, completing an exercise session motivates us to eat healthy. Our bodies seem to work in mysterious ways, but now researchers from the University of Western Australia have shed some light on the link between exercise and subsequent eating behaviour. We all know the benefits of exercise, but it's also important to note that sometimes our behaviour after a, an exercise session can actually counteract some of these benefits. That's Natalia Beer. She's an exercise researcher at the University of Western Australia. 
we wanted to see how uh, manipulating people's psychological approach to exercise would influence the way they approach food after exercise. And specifically, we manipulated people's sense of choice in a workout to then uh, see how much food they would eat afterwards and the types of food that they would reach for. The experiment that Natalia and her colleagues did was to randomise people into two groups prior to completing an exercise session. One group had lots of choice about things like the kind of exercise they did, the exercise intensity, the exercise duration, as well as what music to listen to. Now, for every person in this choice group, there was a matching pair who did a similar exercise session, but with no choices available. The matching pairs were similar in almost every respect, except one had lots of choice and the other had no choice. They were the same gender, they were similar in height, age, weight, fitness, and they expended a similar amount of energy in the exercise session. The researchers then secretly measured the amount and the type of food that the participants ate after exercise. So at no point were they uh, told that we would be measuring their energy intake or their appetite. And uh, when we presented the food buffet to them, we actually said that that was a thank you gesture. The researchers used a questionnaire to confirm the participants were not aware of the true nature of the study, which was to measure what they ate from both the pile of healthy food and the pile of unhealthy food. We provided obvious options such as low-fat milk, whole grain bread, whole grain breakfast cereals, you know, fruits, things that we're quite familiar with being healthy. And then with the unhealthy foods, we had quite obvious choices again. So we had muffins, uh, lollies, chocolate biscuits. I certainly know what foods I would reach for, but the researchers found something quite interesting. Despite both groups reporting similar ratings of appetite, the group who weren't given any choice in their exercise session ate more of the unhealthy foods and had an energy intake that was about 30% higher than the group who were given lots of choices. So what is going on here? In the instance of of this experiment, perhaps exerting self-control by continuing an exercise they don't particularly enjoy um, may lower their their capacity to be able to exert self-control after that when they're exposed to foods that they might want to go for. And we looked at their blood glucose levels as there are a number of theories out there that suggest that with this lowered self-control, they might also experience lower blood glucose levels. But we found quite similar uh, blood glucose levels between the two conditions. It's a clever experiment, and the researchers believe there is a lesson to be learned. Well, from what we've seen in our study, it seems that, you know, simple acts of providing choice in an exercise session, if they can influence the way we behave in a positive way after that exercise session, then why not incorporate those those aspects? It's an important consideration for anyone that's involved in exercising themselves and wants to get the most out of their exercise. Uh, but also for people motivating uh, others to, to exercise uh, to ensure that they're giving uh, those people that they are motivating some choice about what they're doing and making sure that they, they enjoy it and uh, are doing it because they would like to as opposed to being forced to do it. Reminds me of uh, a cartoon which was on the wall of the, the health centre when I was at school and it's got this guy saying, the doctor saying, the best thing you can do is to give up smoking eat less bad for your food and take more exercise. And the guy looks at the doctor and says, what's the second best thing? You were listening to Natalia Beer and she was speaking with Michael Wheeler. The study she was describing just came out in the journal Medicine and Science in Sport and Exercise. And now to the Nobel Prize for Physics. That's been awarded to Rainer Weiss, Kip Thorne and Barry Barish for their work leading to the first detection of gravitational waves in 2015. Glasgow-based astrophysicist Martin Hendry explains. 
Gravitational waves are ripples in space-time, predicted a century ago by Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity, and produced by some of the most violent events in the cosmos. By the time they reach the Earth, however, gravitational waves disturb our patch of space-time by a mind-bogglingly small amount, a million millionth the width of a human hair. The 2017 Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to three key figures in this story of LIGO, who helped to develop the incredible technology required to measure those tiny ripples and to isolate them from all the local disturbances that otherwise could completely drown them out. The two LIGO facilities, the most sensitive scientific instruments ever built, first detected gravitational waves in 2015 from the merger of two black holes more than a billion light years away. LIGO is the instrument used to detect gravitational waves, using the interference of laser light to detect the squeezing and stretching of space-time as gravitational waves pass by. The LIGO discovery was a huge team effort that involved thousands of scientists across the world working together over decades to turn what many had considered an impossible dream into the hottest topic in astronomy. But LIGO's first detection of gravitational waves was only the beginning. Since that discovery was announced in February last year, three more detections of merging black holes have been confirmed. And we are seeing the first hints of how this population of black holes fits into the big picture of how the universe evolved. Amazing stuff. Martin Hendry from the University of Glasgow. Thanks to Katie Haler for putting the Nobel Prize pieces together for us and congratulations to all of the winners. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Izzy Clark. And now we're going to explore the world of DNA technology, including how we can use it to revolutionise healthcare, uncover our human origins, and even prove how much pork there is in a sausage. But first, what exactly is DNA and what does it look like? From the Babraham Institute near Cambridge, Jonathan Lawson. DNA is the instruction manual for every living thing. In every human cell, there's about two metres of DNA. What it is, is a series of uh, chemical units called bases, which are joined together in a long chain, which is what makes the helix structure. There's four different chemical units, A, C, G and T, and the order of those is how information is stored. So now we're going to extract some DNA from some strawberries and we've come to the old Cavendish Laboratories in Cambridge, which is where the structure of DNA was first worked out by Watson and Crick in 1953. So we're going to take some strawberries, put the strawberries in a plastic sandwich bag and then to that you want to add a little bit of salt, some water and finally some washing up liquid. And then basically with your hands you're just going to squish the strawberries as much as you can so that all of the DNA gets released from the cells. And now you have a nice, fairly clear red liquid. But you can't see the DNA in this form. The way you visualise it, the way you get to have a look at it, is to make lots and lots of bits of DNA stick together so that they're then thick enough in clumps to be able to see them. And the way you do that is by adding some alcohol. Now when you look, you'll see very thin, furry white strands. And that's the DNA all clumped together And all of the genetic information that was needed to make strawberries is in those clumps of white DNA. Although what we've just done here is quite a simple experiment that you can easily do in the kitchen, exactly the same procedure, a detergent to break open cells, salt to protect the DNA, 
and alcohol to separate the DNA from the rest of the cells is exactly the same thing that happens in labs all over the world right now when they are sequencing DNA and looking to understand genes and the genome. Jonathan Lawson. So we can get DNA out of a strawberry in under a minute, but why stop at a strawberry? We wanted to know if we could get DNA out of a sausage and whether we could read the sequence of genetic letters or bases in that DNA to work out what meat was in there. We put geneticist Stevie Bain on the case. I'm looking to buy some sausages. I'll go for a couple of the the pork ones then, please. So the butcher claims that these sausages are 100% pork. But can we test this using DNA? I head to the pathology lab at the University of Cambridge, where Dr Ed Fernell will help me figure out exactly what's in these sausages. The first thing we have to do is extract the DNA from the sausage. And to do this, we use essentially the same techniques described in the strawberry experiment, albeit with slightly more expensive chemicals and fancier equipment. Okay, so we've got our DNA extracted now. And we're going to start preparing that DNA for sequencing. But instead of sequencing the entire genome of the pig and whatever else might be in the sausages, we're actually just going to focus on a small region which acts as a barcode for each animal. Now, the way we're going to target that region is using primers. And these are short stretches of DNA which target our enzymes. And the enzymes are then going to make lots and lots of copies of it. And then that will allow us to make a library which we can put on the sequencer and then get the sequence of those regions. To generate many copies of DNA fragments in this way, we require a technique called the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, which uses an enzyme called DNA polymerase. To amplify DNA by polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, you need to split the two DNA strands. Now, you do that by heating them up to 98 degrees Celsius, and that splits them in two. And then we cool it down to what we call our annealing temperature, which here is going to be 63 degrees. That allows the primer to sort of specifically stick to the bit of the chain. And then once it's stuck, we heat it back up to 72 degrees. That then allows the polymerase to come in and to sort of make a copy of the little region that we're interested in. The PCR process takes around one hour to generate millions of copies of our DNA fragment. Once that's done, a liquid containing special tags is then added to the DNA. These tags are important because they mark each of the DNA bases, A, T, G and C, with a different colour, which allows them to be read by a machine called a DNA sequencer. So I'm stood in front of the machine right now and it's got a screen on the front and that's where we do all our interaction from and it's touch screen so it's like really, really simple. Uh, So I'm going to hit the nice big friendly button that says sequence. At that point, it's going to grab our library that we've made, which is basically our little bit of copied DNA with these tags on. And then you have a a computer and a piece of software at the back end that takes a picture every cycle and then reassembles that into a string of DNA letters. Off we go. But will it work? And what will they find? We'll catch up with Stevie and Ed later in the programme. Now, our sausage DNA is fresh, of course, but we can also use very similar techniques that you heard about there to extract and read the genetic sequence of DNA samples that are far, far older. SK Villaslav from Cambridge University is a pioneer in this area. SK, what's the oldest thing that we can get DNA out of at the moment? 
I actually think uh, we, my team still have the record for the oldest genome, and that would be from a 700,000-year-old horse. But my prediction would be that we can even go beyond that, beyond one million years in some cases. What sort of condition is the DNA in, in things that are more than half a million to a million years old then? It's extremely fragmented. So when you retrieve DNA from these ancient samples, it's very often that it's no longer than 100 base pairs. And in comparison, if you take DNA from you and me, for example, we would see stretches that would be millions of base pairs long. So it's getting highly fragmented, and there's also other modifications to the DNA that can result in in incorporation of the wrong bases during amplification that you just described. Can one think of it a bit like a jigsaw, I suppose? And Mm -hmm. in me, the jigsaw is intact. You can see the whole picture. But in a 700,000-year-old bone remnant or something, it's a bit like someone's shaken the jigsaw box and broken up the jigsaw into all the little pieces. And so in assembling the genome back together, you'd have to try and work out where each of the individual pieces go to make that picture. Exactly. It's like a major parcel, right? So you have these very short fragments of DNA that you then have to assembly into a genome. And uh, to do this, you, you normally use a reference genome. So if you're sequencing and DNA from an ancient human, for example, you're using one of the human reference genomes and then putting piece by piece these small fragments that you have sequenced in place. And you're doing that painstaking, working out where each of the pieces, the fragments go. You're doing that with a computer because it can basically look at millions of possible arrangements and combinations at a time and and do what would take us millions of years to do. Exactly. So it's uh, through computer programming. But it's quite surprising that even with fragments down to 35 base pairs, I think it's in the range of 60% of the human genome you can map uniquely with these small fragments. How do you actually go about getting DNA out of these ancient specimens and why have we only gone back a million years? I mean, we've got lots and lots of things which are much older than that sitting in museums, haven't we? Yeah, we do. One thing we have discovered more recently is that there are certain parts of the skeleton, if it's a skeleton that you're looking at, where the DNA is better preserved. For example, the petrous bone, which is kind of part of the inner ear, is the most dense bone in the body, and the DNA preservation seems to be uh, very good there compared to other places. And also in teeth, you also find good DNA preservation compared to other places. But of course, with time and also very dependent on what type of environment you're dealing with, the DNA would finally get so fragmented that it's actually impossible to retrieve any information out of it. Are we at a stage now where... With people like you able to get DNA from smaller and smaller specimens that are older and older, that sometimes we find the genetic image of a fossil, something that existed historically, before we actually find the thing itself. So we know we've got a genetic signature for it, but now we've got to go and find the thing that we found the genetics for. Yeah, it's correct. That's not uncommon. You can say that we find a genetic sequence that doesn't match any existing sequence. And therefore, you know, it derives most likely from some kind of extinct species that hasn't been, maybe either hasn't been described yet or at least hasn't been sequenced yet, right? But in some cases, you know, you also have material that has been described morphologically but haven't been sequenced yet. And therefore, you get a sequence that doesn't match anything. It's hard to say whether it's one or the other. 
what can we learn thinking about humans and, and our origins? What can we now learn and what's emerging by using the sorts of techniques that you're developing and applying them to human evolution? I mean, you can you can study you can say the biological uh, the biological history of of humans. And uh, one thing, I, there's a number of things that have have emerged over the last few years. But but uh, one thing that has become increasingly clear is that humans, modern humans, have migrated over long distances, even from the very early times, spread over the landscape, and have also met each other at mixing with each other. You know, at various time points. So it also makes, for example, the whole idea of, of races, for example, uh, kind of ridiculous because uh, groups have been meeting, separating, meeting again, you know, uh, since uh, since as far as back in time the, as we can measure. Can you infer anything about the the social structure of humans? Because we're a very social species, aren't we? Can can the association of certain clusters of genes or gene sequences, which might be in certain populations, tell us something about, say, who was mating with whom back in evolutionary yeah. time? No, exactly. I mean, we actually had a, a paper in Science uh, this week on this issue here where we tried to understand, did early modern humans, did they actually understand the concept of inbreeding and outbreeding? Of course, if you get inbred, you get all kinds of diseases and, and it's actually very bad for the population. And in order to do this, we sequenced in a number of individuals from the same locality 34,000 years back in time. And to our great surprise, you know, these individuals, which are coming from a very small group of people, doesn't seem to be inbred and they don't seem to be extremely closely related as most people would have suggested. So this really tells us that at least in the upper Paleolithic 34,000 years ago, people had an understanding of the need of getting mates from outside, you can say, the, the group itself, in, in that sense, avoiding inbreeding. They were a canny lot, weren't they, the Stone Age people? Eske, thank you very much. That's Eske Villaslav, one of the pioneers of ancient DNA technology from Cambridge University. And it's not just human history that can be explored using DNA. The infections we succumb to, caused by agents like viruses, also leave genetic fingerprints in their victims. Even though the virus itself may be dead, the sequence of its genetic materials can still be obtained from various tissues and specimens and can reveal crucial insights into where those infections came from and how they evolved. This, in turn, tells us how infections we might encounter in the future may behave. Andrea McCollum works at the US CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. We have a couple of interests. One would be for the smallpox virus itself and how that evolved over time. And then we also are really interested in viruses that were used to vaccinate people against smallpox. If we can begin to take these old specimens and then fill in gaps in our knowledge, we might better understand what was used, for example, in the United States during the 1800s. And then also for modern day, it would be very nice if we could determine how these viruses have changed. Have they changed in a way that have affected their ability to infect human cells and to cause disease in humans? Have their infectious properties actually changed to be less infectious over time? So there's a lot of really interesting questions that we have that these types of specimens help us begin to fill in those holes and answer the questions. Smallpox has been eradicated. So how exactly can you investigate this? 
Yeah, so we are very dependent on looking at older specimens. Some of these older specimens allow us to look at pox viruses, including smallpox, that were present in the 19th century, in the 18th century, and perhaps even further back in time from then. For example, I was initially involved in 2011. We received a call from someone who had visited a museum and had seen what was labeled as a smallpox scab. This actually was a scab that was sent in an envelope with a letter, and it was sent from father to son across the state in Virginia, and it was just after the Civil War. So it was around the 1870s. And it became clear from reading the letter this was a vaccination scab. So the idea is that this scab containing live virus that had been used for vaccination was collected from somebody was being sent to this family member to then be able to vaccinate others. You're looking at the genetic information of these viruses. Does the virus have to be live to take that genetic information and have a look at it? No, it does not. So the nice thing about these viruses, they are DNA viruses. Even if the virus itself is dead in the sense that it cannot cause an infection in humans or in other animals, you may still be able to pull out some of that genetic material and then look at it in the laboratory, obtain the DNA sequence, and then you can find out what virus it was. That is one thing that we've been able to do with a variety of these specimens, like the scab that I mentioned in Virginia, or there have been specimens recently obtained from corpses that have come out of permafrost in Siberia. So you can learn a lot about that virus that you've uncovered without the virus being alive. So what can this genetic information tell us about a virus? So one thing that we would immediately be interested in if we found any of these pox viruses is, one, what is the species? Or is it a combination of species of viruses? And then we want to look gene by gene to see, are the genes the same as what we know exist in the viruses that exist today? And then within the genes, you can look at the specific sequence information that's there to determine, has there been a lot of evolution over time? What specific sequences have changed? And maybe come up with hypotheses for why those changes occurred. Can this help us in our understanding of modern-day viruses? We've seen a lot, say, with Zika or Ebola. Definitely, and you definitely need to do that. And so I think it can help us in a variety of ways. It can, again, help us understand how viruses have changed over time, which may have implications with the pathology or the ability for these viruses to infect human cells or not. And I think what's really nice about some of these older relics is that if you can combine it with documented information, for example, in Virginia with the scab, it was found in a letter. So we had documented information about how it was obtained and then it was used for vaccination. If the specimen came from an actual patient and you have some information about the clinical presentation of that patient and what the patient experienced, As a result of that infection, I think it can help us understand a lot about the ability for these viruses to cause disease, how these viruses are interacting with humans today. And of course, there's a lot of really interesting historical information as well. Should we be concerned about these life viruses and their sort of genetic information entering modern society? Well, I think first we definitely need to determine, you know, when we find one of these relics, Is there live virus or not? To date, we have not been able to find live virus. But certainly that is a concern, and that's something I think we want to determine very quickly and very efficiently 
one for the safety, again, of the individuals who find these specimens and work with them. And then also we want to make sure that this is not spread further. Andrea McCullum there from the US CDC. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Izzy Clark. Still to come, why doctors are sequencing 100,000 NHS patient genomes and what's the best way to swat a fly, a fast, decisive swipe or a stealthy, slow approach? We'll find out. But first, remember that sausage we were genetically sequencing earlier? Let's head back to Cambridge Pathology Lab, where, joined by the butcher who made the sausage, Stevie Bain and Ed Farnell reveal what they found. So what we're looking at is a pie chart which shows the amount of, of reads from each animal as a, as a percentage. Each individual read is a bit of the conserved region that the sequencer sequenced. So the percentage of reads, we say, okay, we know that this specific sequence looks like this in the cow. How many times is that present? Exactly, yeah. So I I guess the good news is is your sausage is 98.61% according to this pig. Which is, which is pretty good. It's mostly, it's pretty much all pig. And then we've got a few trace amounts of cow or beef, a little bit of sheep, a little bit of chicken, and actually a really trace amount of human as well. Hold on a second. You found human DNA yes. in some sausages. We mix them up by hand. So it could be just a, a, a tiny amount of, of trace that way. That's yeah. um, And also handling them. The way we've prepared it in the lab as well, there's mm. DNA in dust, there's DNA on the bench surfaces. Going back to some of the other things that we found in there. So a little bit of cow in there. Um, let's look here. We have 0.26% sheep. Um, So that's the percentage of reads. So that's Mm -hmm. how many times, um, as a percentage, the the sheep genetic code shows up in in the sausage. But that doesn't necessarily mean that zero point two six percent of the sausage is sheep. Exactly. And there's a couple of reasons why that might be. One is that we we do amplify the region and we might get some biases where some sequences are more amplified than others just because of the type of sequence they are. The other issue we might have as well is that the mitochondria, which we're actually sequencing, they're in the muscles of these animals, which is uh, what, what goes into our sausages. And the, the, one of the interesting things is across all the different species, like the pig, the cow and the sheep, there are actually lots of different amounts of mitochondria. Say, for example, in a pig, in a single pig cell, you might have 100 mitochondria, whereas in a single cow cell, you might have 1,000 mitochondria or vice versa. So that can also bias how accurate our quantification is. Mm, yeah, and that's why sort of this type of test, it tells us what DNA is present in there, but then the Food Standards Agency would use sort of a more accurate test to to quantify exactly how much of each animal is in the meat yeah so certainly high quality sausages then and no need to be concerned about those traces of human definitely not (laughs) (laughs) because i guess that's the amazing thing about dna you know we're kind of leaving a trace of ourselves touching the the sample or chopping up the sausage it can just it's going to show up to cut it anything it could have been yeah yeah because we have sequencing data and we can actually see the variation in the different bits of sequence we get we did find something quite interesting actually and what i wanted to ask you was is were these sausages all made from one pig 
No, they're made from probably, I would imagine, two or three. So, so that's really cool, because when we looked at the sequence data, what we could see was actually probably three or four different pigs in there, yeah. just from the genetic variation. Mm. That's, that's really cool. So it matches yeah. up with sort of what you guys do when you make the sausages. So how do you feel about the results? I'm relieved, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah, my boss will be pleased. Put it that way. <laughs> well, now that that's sorted, the only thing left to do is cook them up and chuck them. Yeah, and save some for me. Thanks very much to Stevie Bain and to Ed Farnell from Cambridge University's pathology department for sequencing a sausage for us. I'm very relieved we didn't end up with something of a Sweeney Todd moment there. Now, with us now is David Bentley. He's the chief scientist at the global company Illumina. They're based here in Cambridgeshire, and they've also developed the system that we used to read our sausage DNA and they're the official partners of the NHS 100,000 Genome Project. This is an ambitious study. It was unveiled in 2012 by the then Prime Minister David Cameron, and its aim is to read the genetic sequences of thousands of National Health Service patients. David, can you tell us what actually is this project, and how is Illumina involved in delivering it? So this project is is the first of its kind to really examine a large population of patients, 100,000 genomes from around 70,000 patients, and to look in particular at how best to utilise an entire genome sequence in clinical practice, what we can learn from it, uh, what challenges we face, how to handle the information, and how ultimately to really make a difference to what has been called precision medicine or genomic medicine, to give a better answer for each patient, because we know more about the patient through their genome, and we know more about the disease they may be suffering. Now, we did a bit of a sausage in you know, a matter of hours. For those who may be not so familiar with your technology and the technique, how much more of a problem is it to read the entire genetic code of a human in the way you're proposing to do? I'd say that the human genome, a whole human genome of a person is much larger than some of the samples you've been talking about, some three billion letters or bases of the genome in every person. And the first human genome, the reference human genome that was talked about earlier, that took some seven years to sequence and an international team to do it. The technology uh, revolution, which, which spun out of Cambridge here, actually allows us to do a genome in about two days. In fact, it allows us to do several genomes in two, two or three days. And that therefore really makes it possible to, to access and provide this information for the benefit of patients in timeframes that are clinically relevant. The doctor really can ask the question and make use of the information and we can return it back to them in the time that's really needed. It's an ongoing process. It's accelerating as we go forward. And it's important to say that doing 100,000 genomes is a really big undertaking. It involves a partnership not just with the NHS, but very importantly with Genomics England, who are set up specifically to really manage the whole project, and they partner with us. And they have had to deal with the challenges, not just of how fast can Illumina sequence the genomes, but also how can they recruit patients, provide consent, collect samples, return the data, analyse, interpret them, and really get them back to the doctor. And that whole process is being tackled straight away at the level of 100,000 over the three, four-year duration of the project. Now, we're calling this the 100,000 Genome Project, but there is a subtlety in there because you then said, well, it's from 70,000 people. So why is there that distinction? Why have you got 70,000 people and 100,000 genomes? So the project is really addressing two of the the forerunner challenges that the genome really hopes to make a big impact on. One is rare genetic disease, which often hits newborns and paediatric conditions. And in that case, we really look to try to sequence the child that's affected and also their parents. So that's three genomes for one disease. And the other important area, of course, is cancer. Cancer is also a disease of, of the genome, 
But in this case, it's the DNA in the cancer, which has changed over a period of time, either through exposure to toxins or radiation or through other events, which are really given rise to changes since the person's genome really was given to them by their parents. And here we're sequencing that tumor DNA to look at the changes that happened since the germline, since, the, uh, since birth. But we're also sequencing the normal from the same patient so that we can distinguish the differences and really pinpoint what it is that's happening in the cancer that is not happening in the cells in the rest of the body. And that really gives us the clues for what's caused this cancer, what the person has been exposed to, and hopefully how we can manage the condition and, and develop or, or provide treatments. But scientists all over the world have been sequencing genes and tumours and patients for... A long time. So what does doing this en masse in the way you're doing it add that other people can't do and replicate so easily? So it's important to, to recognise the importance of all those other studies because all, all that information folds into the present studies. But the key about sequencing the whole genome in one shot in two days is the possibility to gather all the information that might be required. The answer is in there somewhere if you have the whole genome. You just have to know how to find it. Uh, you can find the needle in the haystack, but you do at least have the whole haystack to look at quickly and efficiently. And we can develop methods. We are developing methods to analyse ever more quickly and precisely, searching through that haystack in a very automated way to look for causes of disease for these particular individuals and provide an answer quickly. And how are you getting on? Are you on schedule? The programme is going very well. It's an enormous project, as I've described, the path from the patient in the clinic right through to the sequencing at Illumina and back out to Genomics England and back to the doctor. It takes some time. We've actually done 35,000 genomes so far, the majority of them in the last 12 to 18 months, and we are accelerating the programme all the time as we learn how better to do it. And the teams all over the country, from Genomics England to the Genomic Medicine Centres to the Research Centres to the Data Centre, are all working together to, to really decide how, how best to handle the information quickly and efficiently. And just very briefly, David, people often worry when we talk about data and personal data, about data security. So how do you keep a person's genetic fingerprint safe in your hands or, or, or in the project's hands? Uh, it's important to recognise a great deal of effort has gone into the security of an individual's data <coughs> and their DNA. Uh, there's a chain of custody. It goes all the way from the doctor uh, and the patient who has consented to be part of the process and has it explained to them. And even by the time the DNA gets to us, it's been anonymised. And so the identity of the person is protected really close to the source. And Genomics England themselves take care of that through a high security data facility. And they also store the information, the clinical information downstream to enable people to be as secure as they can possibly feel, knowing that Genomics England really has the custody of that important privacy and confidentiality of the project. It's good to know we're in safe hands, isn't it? Thank you very much. David Bentley from Illumina. And thanks to you to our other guests this week, Jonathan Lawson, Ed Farnell, Eskate Villaslav and Andrea McCullum. And now to finish, it's time for question of the week. And Michael Wheeler's been buzzing about this question from John. We know that flies process movement much quicker than humans, which is why it's really hard to swat them. But is it true that if you move slow enough, then the fly will not register the movement and therefore you can actually get it. So without winging an answer to this one ourselves, we put it to our listeners and Ian from Melbourne, Australia has discovered that confusing the fly with a clap of the hands makes the job easier. But what does our expert think? Here is animal vision specialist Kate Feller from the University of Cambridge. After discussing this question with several researchers at an animal vision conference in Finland, literally as naked scientists in the sauna, we all agree, yes, 
this is possible. Because fly motion vision is processed very fast, you can theoretically trick the fly by just moving very slowly. How fast the edges of your hand expand relative to the fly's vision is what triggers it to flee, so a slow hand could confuse the fly. However, because the fly motion vision is so sensitive, you would have to move so slowly that either you get bored and give up, or the fly just takes off because, you know, flies don't stay in one place for very long. Some alternative methods are to hold perfectly still and watch the fly until it starts washing itself, then strike quickly while it's distracted, just like jumping them in the shower. You can also approach the fly at a normal speed, and instead of slapping it, clap your hands just above the fly to intercept it as it takes off. The old trap and clap method. This one can even be done on the fly. One other solution that a colleague recommended, that I have personally yet to try, is to spread your fingers wide on the same surface as the fly and pull your middle finger back like a slingshot while you slowly slide your hand towards the fly and quickly release the cocked finger once the bug is in range. Since the fly is being approached from multiple directions, it should be confused enough to not take off as it would normally to an approaching hand, so you can effectively squish it when you release your middle finger. I'll definitely be experimenting with this method. So to any flies out there, beware the naked scientists. Next week, we will be beaming out an answer to this question from Jason. Our new house is 140 metres from a cell phone tower. As a family, the three of us feel like we have been affected to different degrees in terms of sleep, motivation and anxiety, which are commonly reported symptoms of exposure to microwave radiation. It's a controversial topic, but are there any major health risks with living close to a phone tower? And if you think you can tap into that question, then email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Stevie Bain for putting the programme together and being an all-round stupendous intern with us. Do join us next week when we're looking at the science of artificial intelligence, including a machine that can take a look at your photograph and work out what your emotions are doing. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the SDFC, the EPSLC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.